My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. My name is Joe Fish. I'm the lead producer of The Big Story. And uh, I'm here with our host, Jordan Heath-Rawlings, whose voice you'll recognize more than mine, for our inaugural uh, listener feedback episode. Jordan, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, the volume of feedback from our listeners finally got so profoundly overwhelming that we felt like losers not responding to it. So thank you to everybody. And this is, uh, this is your chance to hear what your fellow listeners think of this show and us and what should happen here. For sure. Okay, and we got a lot of great feedback. We got too much feedback for us to read out. By the way, I'm going to be reading out some of this feedback, but it's going to be heavily truncated. A lot of people had a lot of thoughts. I couldn't read them in full, so I kind of had to cut it down. So uh, I apologize for that, but here we go. He's going to cut you the same way he cuts me every day. (laughs) Exactly, mercilessly. We got a lot of feedback, actually, to our uh, episode we did with David Booth who's a journalist from driving.ca, we were talking about uh, electric vehicles, which is a hot button issue at the best of times. So I heavily cut down this feedback because there was a lot of specific gripes uh, and really thoughtful gripes that this listener had with the episode. But I'm just going to give you, I I cut it down to give you a more sort of broad stroke sense of, of what his perspective was. In today's episode, I really did not resonate with the negativity from David Booth on the topic. No doubt he is right. There's massive subsidies, as there is in many industries. We only have to glance in the direction of oil and gas to see how much government support that has received over the past century. We are trying to push sustainable change. That is a good thing. As an optimist for our sustainable future, it was a shame to hear such negativity on your podcast, as I fear this will impact listeners' opinions. Hopefully in the future when discussing the topic, you can search for a more balanced guest. And uh, he actually goes on to to make a specific suggestion for a format change, uh, suggesting that we have more than one guest on to maybe have a more sort of balanced, uh, present a more balanced case for the topics we cover. How do you respond to that, Jordan, that that suggestion that we tweak the format? Uh, is not the first person to suggest it. It is a, I won't say a common suggestion, but... We've definitely gotten it before, and hey, we could have two or three or four people on. Maybe we'll make it a panel show. We'll get a Republican and a Democrat and somebody who's worked on campaign finance, and we'll all get them screaming at each other, and it'll be amazing. Yeah, crossfire style yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, crossfire, hardball. The big story is a simple premise, and a simple premise is the reason. Listen, it's the reason that uh, Joe and I and Robin and the team can actually do this five days a week, um, almost every week of the year. If every episode we did had to have two guests in balance, you would get half the episodes. And not only that, is you would never be left with uh, one person's point of view resonating. And I actually think that like when we came up with this show, the idea is a curious person talks to a smart person. And uh, you might not agree with the way David Booth sees it, but he's somebody who covers the industry He knows a heck of a lot about it. He uh, reports on it. He commentates on it. He lives this stuff. So we picked his brain about it. 
Next time we'll pick someone else's brain about it and maybe you will like them better. The idea is not to make sure that our guests agree with anyone. The goal is to make sure that we give you some insight into a topic, that we take you a little deeper into it. Um, and the way to do that is by taking one person and picking their brain at length. So that's what we try to do. And, and Joe would kill me if I started saying we got to book two guests for every episode we do. <laughs> yeah, double my salary and we'll talk about it. I, I want to give another quick shout out to a guest who wrote in about electric cars. I'm not going to read it exactly, but uh, someone named Kara or Kara, apologies if I'm getting the pronunciation wrong, wrote in to mention that uh, there was a company making electric cars uh, in the early 2000s called Zen Cars in Canada. And apparently they were selling them for like $12,000. I think they had a top speed of like 40 kilometers an hour and a max range of 80. Yeah, little little city get around cars. Um, I think I remember those. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she mentioned that they were made by a guy named Ian Clifford. And she was suggesting that maybe we get him on the show and ask him. It's a good idea, Joe. Go dig him up. Moving on. This next one comes from Kate. This is a, a piece of good feedback. Thank you for your good news week. Please do more of these stories. I tuned in every morning this week preferring to hear about something positive rather than another news channel telling me more bad news. Sincerely, Kate from Vancouver, British Columbia. We had a lot of fun doing that week, and we will do more of it. It is rare, I think, to get to spend an entire week on things that make us hopeful and, and everybody around here was in a good mood. The problem is, is that, uh, Kate, not all the listeners agree with you bad news attracts a lot more listeners than good news. The stats will show. That's why they got the, uh, if it bleeds, it leads uh, maxim in journalism school. I don't love it, uh, but the data tells you what it is. So we will make time for good news. And I don't know if you, if you notice, but we try to, if not good news, do something non-depressing, offbeat, whimsical, uh, whatever on Fridays, because uh, everybody can get overloaded with negativity these days. And it is very easy to become hopeless. And we do not uh, often want to send you into the weekend feeling that way. So uh, we try to make time for it. And I think the holidays was a perfect time for it. So I think we should do it again next year. Yeah, I agree. And uh, Kate, if you want more good news, then uh, start lobbying the world to produce more too would be nice because uh, we can only take what we're given. It was uh, depressingly hard to find and chase stories for that week. <laughs> um, yeah, much harder that, to find good news than it is to find bad. All right. So this next one comes to us from James. Uh, this is in response to the story we did about Saskatchewan pushing back against the federal carbon tax. Pay attention to how Joe just said that. It'll become clear in a moment. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Good story. Feels like the premier is on the wrong foot picking this fight with Ottawa, especially given the episode from Dr. Pomeroy yesterday and the effects of climate change on Western Canada. Also, it's fun to listen to people from Ontario try to pronounce Saskatchewan. Are we doing that wrong? It sounds right to me. Yeah, that's kind of how I assumed it was. I don't even know. Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. People also uh, have written to me and say that, you know, I, I know you're from Toronto, so why don't you pronounce it that way? You always say like Toronto when you're doing your intros, which is no, not, I guess, how I would say it in real life, because I do say Toronto, but I try to uh, enunciate on this program because right. I take my job seriously. But I honestly don't know. Somebody from Saskatchewan... Leave a voicemail and say it the way people from Saskatchewan say it so I can hear it because I I honestly can't 
can't figure out where I'm getting it wrong, but this is great. Saskatchewan. Okay, so this next episode we're going to talk about is um, this is one that generated a lot of feedback. This was an episode we did about risky play with uh, Dr. Mariana Brissoni from uh, the University of British Columbia. We were talking about specifically about signs at several dozen tobogganing hills around the city that said no tobogganing, and it generated a lot of uproar. Jordan, you talked about how uh, your daughter was personally affected by it. I had to teach her. I had to teach her that not all laws are meant to be followed. Not all signs are meant to be obeyed, which is a lesson I didn't necessarily think I'd have to do at six. But I think it's good for her. No, six is a good age, I think, to learn about civil disobedience. Um, <laughs> all right. So this one comes to us from Kathy in uh, Mississauga. I was flabbergasted the first time my daughter came home and said the principal said cartwheels are not allowed. What a super basic kid thing to ban. When I spoke to the principal, she shut me down completely by saying that's just a rule she has to follow. My kid is super active. Ants in her pants is her best description if you need a visual. Can't climb the one tree of the schoolyard. Can't do handstands. Can't run on the pavement, but also can't go on the grass area if it rained. Insert expletive, expletive, expletive. She actually wrote that. They took down the play structure, too, because of parents complaining of the small pebbles that serve as a landing medium were being thrown at kids. I remember my own elementary school taking down the play structure in the 90s because of quote-unquote safety reasons. My kids are already in grade 6 and 8, so their days of free play are already dropping. We take them to organize sports, but in their free time, all they want to do is be online with their friends because that's what their friends are doing. Nothing uh, makes me more conservative reactionary dad than this shit, you know? I don't even know what to say about banning cartwheels, but I remember my elementary school playground uh, also no longer standing. My daughter goes to the elementary school that I went to. That playground is no longer standing. I remember lots of kids getting hurt. I remember I almost got hurt. I remember my friend broke his arm. We used to run across like beams that were 10 feet high and... You know, like most of the time it was fine and occasionally we got hurt and we all lived. And I'm not saying like make, you know, play structures, 1980s uh, dangerous again. <laughs> but like, you don't, uh, I don't know. I don't like, I don't like being in the role of like, I can't believe the kids these days. But like, it's just, it's so sad. Oh, here's the here's the really interesting, very Toronto thing that I didn't mention on the show about this tobogganing thing. OK, so like I said, it's not a bylaw. It's not like you're breaking the law by doing this. You are just assuming the risk. Right. So you get hurt. You can't sue the city because the city said, hey, no tobogganing, which is them just putting up some signs. But what they used to do on that hill that my daughter goes down. There are a few trees, and every winter they would come and put hay bales around those trees. So just in case a kid like veered off the path and slammed into the trees, they wouldn't get seriously hurt. Now we get a sign saying no tobogganing instead of hay bales. So it's not even just like preventing risky playing kids. It's an attempt to be cheap and not provide the protection for kids that are going to do it anyway. And that's what really pissed people off. That's actually the perfect segue to the next thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, this listener had, uh, well, many thoughts about our episode on child safety, and uh, I don't think I need to give much more preamble than that. So here it is. Hey, um, my name is Justin. I live in Collingwood, Ontario, and I was really interested in the most recent episode about uh, children's play. The one thing that I really felt was missing in that, in all of it, 
was the conversation about the way that our public spaces have been constructed to explicitly exclude children and the anxiety that is built in to parents simply by the presence of large, fast-moving vehicles. Um, you know, a, a trend that I don't hear talked about and I would really love to hear an episode on is the trend towards these excessively large vehicles, these trucks with hoods that you cannot see people over, um, and the rise, the rapid rise of front-over collision injuries, which is basically a nice way of saying a car driving over a child, usually a parent driving over their own child in their own driveway because they couldn't see them over the hood of their giant truck. And so when we talk about time and space and freedom, the space that children are able to occupy has been so constrained by the ubiquity of cars. I can't feel comfortable letting my children play in my front yard, not because I live on a high traffic street, but just because the threat of the presence of those cars moving that fast in that space makes me feel like I cannot trust not my children, but those people operating those big, dangerous vehicles in residential areas. I cannot trust them to put my children's safety first over their convenience and them saving two seconds and getting home. And so when we talk about our children's freedom and our children's mobility, if we just try and put it all on parents without actually putting some of the onus on the mobility system and the way that we've designed our public space to exclude children from it. I think we're doing a disservice to parents and it makes me really sad when I think about how much I constrain my own children's movements when they are perfectly capable of exploring the world on their own. But the vehicles and the people piloting them are increasingly dangerous for them to navigate with. And so I think that that's a really important thing that was missing from this episode. I mean, he's absolutely right. I, I've forgotten about that one before I went into my little mini rant, but he covered it much more accurately than I could. And uh, yeah, you see uh, around our neighborhood, people put up their own, like, please slow down, kids play here. We got speed bumps and everything. And uh a kid still got smoked at the intersection last fall, and thankfully, you know, he suffered pretty bad injuries, but he was okay. But yeah, it's terrifying. Like, I, I walk uh, my daughter to school past trucks that the front is taller than her head, and I wonder how would these people ever see her if she was in the street? So, uh, yeah, 100%. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. and We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. All right, so hard pivot here. We uh, ran a story about cats. This one actually isn't a vitriolic comment, though, which is surprising. This is actually a, kind of a nice one and an interesting one. So this one comes to us from Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for writing in. 
Uh, big fan of your podcast. After listening and then moving on to research invasive species in a few articles, including a good National Geographic piece with a good definition of invasive species, I noticed that cats, along with most of the other culprits, were basically, quote unquote, misplaced species who would have never left their natural habitats if it weren't for the biggest invasive species of all to guide them. Guess who? I obviously haven't seen the the National Geographic piece, but isn't that true for almost all invasive species? Like, aren't we responsible for, like, all of them? Like, I know, like, zebra mussels, and they come over on boats, and um, people import animals as pets, not just cats, but, like, stupid exotic animals as pets. Well, the wild boars, which you've also done episodes on, right. were imported by humans not native to North America, and they are wreaking havoc all over the continent. And we are changing the climate so that species have to move uh, further north out of their natural habitat and into other ones. So, you know, we're just doing a bang up job all around. You know, I will say that my uh, my girlfriend's parents have cats that are outdoor cats. Her perspective is, look, maybe these cats are killing birds, but in the grand scheme of environmental degradation and all of the horrific things to, sure. you know, point a finger at that we're doing to the environment, this is probably a drop in the bucket. But, you know, there was a lot of sentiment on that side on social media, I will say that, like, you know, we're now going to blame the cats for this when humans are killing species at like extinction level rates. And that's I mean, totally fair. Uh, like I said, I love cats and I had outdoor cats growing up. I'm, mostly I have an indoor cat now because because I don't want her to get run over by one of those big trucks we just talked about. <laughs> right. I also have a furry little prisoner in my home and uh, I love her to bits. So, uh, yeah, no, thank you all for your feedback on this. It was a fun episode and uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll return to the subject in the future. Can we play the solution to the housing crisis now? Okay, so this this was in response to one of the thousand episodes on the housing crisis we've done in the last six months. Um, We're always looking for solutions, and nobody, nobody, has gone here yet. Right. All right. Here, let's play. Let's play it. Sergeant, hey, it's Terry O'Connor here from Pemberton, BC. I can solve your Canadian housing crisis in two words, man. Trailer parks. Like, I don't know why we're not doing them. Uh, we could make them so they're co-op, so they're so they're community-owned. They're modular housing. It's fast. It's easy. All you got to do is put the the ground utilities in, and and they're nice. I I live in one. Um, it's a slice of heaven. I got my own little fenced yard. I can let my dog out for a crap. Like, you know, I've got a community where I can have beers with my neighbors out in the front driveway on like Halloween and stuff like that, and send the kids out for candy. Like. Everything about it's great, and it's affordable. Like my my mortgage is like a thousand bucks on a two hundred thousand dollar trailer, and and my pad rent is like four hundred bucks. So it's it's quite doable, you know. Uh yeah, I want to go and uh, and have a beer with him and his neighbors on Halloween. Do you know something? You want to know? Uh, you want to know something about me, Joe? Yeah, please give me a give me a lift the veil. When I was smaller, um, you know, we have a family farm, as I've mentioned, in Quebec, and all of our relatives, um, you know, my aunts and uncles would have their own places on the farm, and our place on the farm was a trailer that we installed that my mom and dad bought and drove onto the farm and parked it on a part of the land and ran some water up from the nearest home with a well 
and ran some electricity up. And that was it. It was a two-bedroom, kitchen, living room uh, trailer, and we would stay in it for the summer when we went down to the farm. And we did that till, uh, uh, till I was probably 16 years old. But it was great. It's a trailer. Trailer houses, I think, and trailer parks are uh, sometimes unfairly maligned or joked about. But like Terry's right. It's like it's modular housing. It was quick. It was easy. It would be a fine. I look at some of the apartments people are paying God knows how much for now. And I say, wow, our trailer was a lot bigger than that. Anyway, so I loved I loved this voicemail. And Terry, uh, let us know where you are. If you're if you're ever from ever in the area, I'm coming for a beer. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, ask me if I'd rather li- pay a million dollars for a studio apartment in Liberty Village or a 200 grand for a trailer in Pemberton, British Columbia. I think it's a pretty easy call for me to make. It's a little slice of heaven. All right. So we uh, we did an episode about the fact that Canada's fertility rate uh, has reached an all time low. We talked to Don Kerr, who's a demographer at uh, King's University College at Western University. And essentially, we were just talking about, you know, the factors behind the low fertility rate, uh, what it means, how that's going to shape Canada's future. And uh, people had opinions on this. This one comes from Mary. It's a bit long. I cut it down a little bit, Uh, but I'm going to read it mostly in its entirety because I think it's interesting. Hello, I am a 34-year-old woman who considers herself to be child-free by choice. I thus listened with great interest to your episode on Canada's fertility rate aired on Monday, February 6th. While I found the episode to be engaging, I must admit that I was disappointed that one fundamental point was not addressed. A low fertility rate is not necessarily solely reflective of extrinsic factors. Intrinsic motivations also play a major role. At its core, I consider that life is too short to spend a significant chunk of it in your prime years on something that one finds unfulfilling. And as not having children becomes more widespread and visible, I believe that young people increasingly realize that there are more pathways in life than the traditional one of marriage and kids. I am thankful that I live in a society where women have the autonomy to make decisions on their fertility. Insofar as not having kids is a choice freely made, that is something that should be celebrated. And you would likely find this interesting, but I am an immigrant from Singapore, a country well known for its ultra low fertility rate, 1.05 in 2022, and failed attempts by its government to increase it. I mean, yes. How do you feel about that? Do you think we mi- do you think we missed that perspective, Jordan? Of the- I think though. I think, though, that like there's always going to be a certain percentage of people that don't want kids and that's fine and it's become more socially acceptable and as it continues, it probably will become more normalized. Um, But it's Mm -hmm. probably always the same percentage of people that didn't want kids. You know, I'm talking here about the people that really, really just don't want them, not people who like would would want them if they could afford a home or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's it's you know, much like uh, people who just didn't want to get married or people who felt like they couldn't come out of the closet in past years because it hadn't have been normalized. Those people were always there. They're just now becoming more visible. But I think like what we're talking about in terms of the fertility rate and, you know, I read uh, I read a bunch of social media responses on the intro to not this Saturday's, but the past Saturday's in this economy, which is about the cost of having kids. And, you know, the number of responses we got to this being like, yeah, 
It's impossible. I can't contemplate it. I can't afford a place. I can't afford groceries. I, you know, so many things that people say were standing in the way of having kids that, like, I'm not dismissing Mary's point of view at all. I just think the overwhelming majority of people not having kids now are doing it because, like, they're afraid of the end of the world. They can't afford crap. Everything's depressing. The climate's eroding. And, you know, like, it's it's an easy choice to make right now. I don't blame them. Um, but I think the the percentage of people who are just like, I don't, I don't want a baby. It's not who I am. It's not a goal of mine in life has always been there. It's just now more visible, which is great. Sure. But I think the other part of this discussion is more interesting because we got a couple of other responses about a different aspect of this that we didn't address, which I think is worth uh, talking about. Do you want to do that one quickly? Absolutely. This one comes to us from Elizabeth. And again, heavily truncated this one, but I think this gets her point across. I found it scathing and absolutely frustrating to hear two seemingly intelligent men sit there and discuss fertility rates declining as if 99.9% .9 of the time it's just a woman slash couple's choice to not have kids for selfish reasons. But nobody is going to talk about the rising cases of infertility, couples that want children desperately and can't conceive, couples that have to go through rounds of oftentimes unsuccessful IVFs and other medicated cycles. And if a couple does successfully have a baby, finally, perhaps they decide that their fertility journey was too stressful and they are just thankful and happy with one child that was wanted for so 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 long and yes you better believe i am speaking from experience i'm not one of those women who is willingly choosing to not have kids i usually love to listen to big story podcasts but this was very shameful and tone deaf and insensitive is the way that elizabeth puts it yeah i get it i mean i i don't agree necessarily that we were shameful and tone deaf and insensitive but it is a point well taken i think it's a whole different episode to be honest with you, and I actually started looking around um, after reading this email about rising infertility rates, and and there's a lot of interesting stuff out there, and I think we probably should do an episode about that. I think the episode that we did was meant to cover the fact that, you know, in all surveys and all responses, fewer people are saying that they don't want to have kids, and this is why. But I think this is an aspect that we should we should look into and might be uh, might absolutely be worth an episode. And and I like that it was brought to our attention. So thank you, Elizabeth. For sure. So keep your eyes peeled for our episode about the looming uh, children of men style reality. Ears, <laughs> ears peeled. Sorry, what did I say? Eyes? Oh, what a that's a podcasting faux pas. All right. Ears. So let's end off here. Uh, this is a more sort of like housekeeping issue with the show, but it's one that I think is important to address. So this one comes to us from Deborah, and thank you, Deborah, for writing in. She says, thanks very much for the good work that you all do in putting together the podcast. I really enjoy them, even if some subjects are tough. I subscribed to the podcast, but left Apple Podcasts a few years ago for a better, for me, platform, Overcast. Is there any way that I can listen to the ad-free version in Overcast? I subscribed to a couple of other podcasts through Patreon and was able to set this up with a special link. So some housekeeping news. We will, sometime in the near future, uh, be discontinuing that subscription option on Apple Podcasts. When we began it, we were hoping to offer uh, bonus episodes and stuff through it. We haven't been able to make that happen. We have been offering ad-free podcasts, obviously, and we have some people who enjoy that, which um, which is great. But we've also received a lot of feedback from people who, when I, I talk to them, say, I thought because I looked it up in Apple and there was a subscribe button right there, I thought that I had to pay for this podcast. And that's like, as I mentioned, when we launched that subscription option, that is never the message that we wanted to 
to be sending. All the weekday episodes of this podcast have remained free and and will. Um, but some people looking for us, perhaps wanting to listen to the show, thought that they would have to pay for it and didn't realize like it was already free. You're just paying to get rid of the ads. So we're going to wind that down because ultimately our goal for this podcast is for it to be accessible and available easily for anyone who wants to listen to it. And I don't want any barriers to entry. So uh, watch for that. And that means, yes, there there won't be, unfortunately, uh, subscription options available in other podcast platforms. It's uh, all equitable and free across the board coming soon. To those of you who did subscribe, we very much, very much appreciate your support and you will get whatever portion of your money back that is left when the subscription option goes away. Uh, but thank you, as always, for listening to us. And I guess, Joe, for everybody that writes in, you know, uh, obviously we got way more feedback than we included here. But like, I hope that this gives people some insight into like how seriously we take listener feedback and voicemails. Like we, we read, like I said, we read them all. We listen to them all. They get in front of us. And I hope occasionally you hear stories that you've pitched on this show. That's why we wanted to do this episode. I'm hoping to do one of these per quarter, basically to, to wrap up any feedback we've gotten and, uh, and to thank you guys for listening. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Keep the feedback coming. Sometimes this job can feel like uh, just putting episodes out into the void. So when we hear human voices coming back at us, it means a lot. And uh, send your feedback for the feedback app. If there's more we can do here, let us know. And thank you again, really, from all of us at The Big Story. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. and We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.